Proverbs 14 verses, incredible verses, particularly as we prepare to take communion this morning. And really what I'd like to do is just talk about why communion is so important to us as a child of God, as a child of the King, what it looks like in our confession of who Jesus is. As an adopted child of the King, what our confession entails, but also what our commission is about. Because when we take communion, it is about our confession as Jesus is Lord and it's about our commission as making Him known all over to the ends of the earth. Well, Ephesians was a crazy place. You may uh, know a little bit about Ephesians. It, it was a lot, like, uh, a lot like America, to be quite honest. And um, it was a prosperous city. It was a harbor city in Asia Minor. It was famous because the Silk Road ended in Asia uh, right at that point. But the community's prized idol was Diana. And uh, she was a nasty sort. She was, uh, in fact, her temple was one of the seven wonders of the world, man-made wonders of the world at that time. And people from all over the world would flock to see this temple. But it was a really a, a, a place of prostitution. And uh, the streets were uh, just strewn with goddess prostitutes and, um, uh, and sailors. You, you had every opportunity to get whatever you needed there. And it was a place of worship, misdirected worship. But I think the reality is for us is we worship what we love, whether that's teenage girls screaming at boy band concerts, sports fans exalting their favorite team, even when there's a no-hitter in South Florida. Parents exalting their kids, extracurricular schedules, consumers praising their favorite stores. But we've taken the good things in creation and we've made them functional idols for us. Whether that's treasure, food, work, relationships, sex, we substitute them for our God, turning those things into God's things and therefore creating a point of idolatry. So how does the gospel speak into this problem? How does Ephesians tell us that it addresses this worship? What does God do in us? Well, you know, Ephesians is a complicated book. It's a beautiful book. I think it's like looking at a diamond from different angles. There's, there's different prisms of light everywhere you look in Ephesians, and particularly in chapter 1. But I want to go back to verse 5 for a second, where it talks about adoption. It says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, fancy word for sin, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. I love that word, lavished. I mean, it just it's such a beautiful picture. He lavished His grace upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. So what does adoption mean? Well, there's a lot to adoption. One of the things simply is it means we have all the rights and privileges that belong to the family of God. So that's good news, good hope. 
So it tells us that we've been adopted and now we have purpose. We're part of this great plan that he has. So let's just talk about adoption for a second. Uh, first thing, it, it means that there's redemption from our depravity. There's redemption from our depravity. In verse 7, he says, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sin. You may know Romans 5, 8, Christ showed us his love while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. But adoption also includes sacrifice. See, Jesus was both victim and he was priest. He was mediator and priest. And, and this is the picture of God's grace. Grace begins at the cross where he saves us from sin and, con- and continues in the resurrection where he saves us to new life. It's an irresistible, intoxicating grace. It's a grace that doesn't just make the bad good, but the dead alive. God initiates this action when he accepts us and invites us into a relationship with him. See, Ephesians 2.8 says it is by grace that we are saved through faith, not by our works. See, he reaches down from heaven and gives us new birth through the cross and resurrection. And when he redeems us, he addresses our sin nature. Christ's death not only removed the penalty of sin, but he endured the penalty of sin in our place. And he does that through a substitution, through an exchange. So part of adoption also means that there is this substitution made. There's this gospel exchange that takes place. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. He exchanged his life for ours, made payment for us, his righteousness for our sin. In fact, he exchanges our need for validation with his redemption. That's what it says in verses 7 through 10. That's a beautiful thing. No longer do we have to justify ourselves or seek self-certification or self-validation. You see, redemption denotes liberation from all of that, from bondage and imprisonment. God does this work of rescuing us and transferring his righteousness from His blood into us. You see, the forgiveness we receive is not dependent upon what we can do or how right we can make ourselves, but it has to do with the exchange that Jesus made for us on the cross. But He also exchanges our insignificance for His inheritance. That's what verses 11 and 14 say, that we seek our significance in the promise of His inheritance. An inheritance is something given for the future, right? It's something that is sure to happen. In fact, the translation here, when we look at the Greek, says that we were made an inheritance. That denotes possession, that we are His. We are children of the King. See, there's no second-class citizens in God's family. You're either in or you're out. But if you're in, man, if you're in. You're given a present and a future hope and significance. See, we're part of His redemptive present and loving this world and the responsibilities that He's given us. But He goes on and He says that He exchanges our insecurity for His seal, verses 12 and 13. This is good, too, because our fears oftentimes drive our decision-making, right? But you see, when our security is found in Jesus, our fears have to conform 
to his promises. See, we can now trust an unknown future to a known God. And the significance of a seal is that it marks not only authenticity, but it marks ownership. And so when it says that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, it means that there is not only a source of power for us, but a source of assurance for us. But finally, adoption means that there's reconciliation. This is where the rubber meets the road. You see, because reconciliation deals with our justification before a holy God. You see, God is holy, so He has to deal with sin. If He doesn't deal with sin, He's not a holy God. So He has to deal with our sin. And He does this through forgiveness, which brings regeneration to the heart. Now, regeneration is important. It's like when, when, when the surgeon takes the paddles to the body and regenerates the heart. But we don't just need a surgeon. We also have to have a judge. A judge who justifies us, who declares us not guilty, and then puts or imputes Christ's righteousness in us. You see, forgiveness alone just makes us morally neutral. But it's justification when God puts His righteousness in us, when no longer above our name and above our life does it say that we are debtor. Rather, it says that we are paid in full. We have good standing. We, we're released from liability to punishment and we're restored to favor with God. You see, justification involves a change in status and one in condition. You see, our legal status has changed from debtor to paid in full. Our condition has changed from one that is hostile to God but is now at peace with God. See, God as reconciler means that He redeems us. And by our repentance, He makes us new, but He also justifies us by changing our legal status. So what does this mean for you and me this morning? As we take communion here in a moment, we recognize that we are a redeemed child of God. We recognize that the confession that we have as we take the bread and the juice is that we are His. Well, the first thing is this is that we have to start living vertically. See, when we take communion, it's a confession and it is a commission where we say we are going to live vertically, personally and as a church. You see, an encounter with God changes everything, right? It changes everything. For me, that was an alcoholic and druggie at age 19, had been doing that for over six years, every day. But an encounter for God changed all of that. See, we are made in such a way that it's impossible to find fulfillment apart from God. It's impossible to find fulfillment apart from the adoption of the king. So our vertical relationship will always inform our horizontal position. That's why we got to start living vertically. You see, great horizontal uh, impact happens as a, uh, as a result of vertical focus. So for Good Hope to impact its community, to reach families, the disenfranchised, our position has to be a vertical one. You see, Good Hope has to be a God-meeting church before a need-meeting one. So we prioritize things from a vertical perspective rather than a horizontal one. If we start with need-meeting, we'll focus on the social and give a nod to the spiritual 
But if we start with a God meeting worship, the need meeting will effectively inform us God's perspective and how to meet our community. You see, if we only give people what they want in a church instead of giving them what they were created for, we play into the very idolatry that not only Ephesus, but oftentimes the church in America was created to eliminate. So we start living vertically. Secondly, we have to be more concerned in God's size than ours. You know, living in the Metroplex, I don't get to see the stars very often because of all the lights. And, uh, but I love going to the country because I can see an aspect of God's creation that I don't always get to observe. I mean, think about the heavens for a moment, the solar system, the sun, eight planets. In fact, the sun and the eight planets, there's a diameter of 7.5 billion miles. That's a long ways. In fact, if you drove your space car, assuming that you had a space car, At 65 miles per hour around the clock, it would take you 13,172 years just to get across. See, our galaxy has over 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. With each star representing a solar system more or less the size of our own with planets revolving around their own suns as well. So that's about 100 billion solar systems in our galaxy. Now, astronomers guesstimate that there's 50 billion galaxies in the entire universe. Now, they don't really know because God's a big God. And we know that our universe is continuing to expand. I mean, we got a, we got a great God. And I love to fish, and one of the things I know about fishing is that the size of your fish will be uh, in proportion to the size of the lake you're fishing in, Right? So you got to go to a big lake in order to catch big fish, unless they artificially stock it. Now, we got a big God, and this is a big pond. So what does that say in proportion to who God is? Man, He is a big God. I love what John Piper says. He says, we are most satisfied when God is most glorified. We have to see Him for who He is. Third thing is this is we pursue people because He pursues us. He adopted us. My wife and I are in the process of adoption now, and so we're learning much about the character of God just by the process of adoption. And it's amazing to better understand that and to see how we are choosing a child and how He chose us. God's been choosing people for years. He chose us. He chose to use His people to express His glory. He chose to create the world for His glory. He chose Abraham to bring blessing to the nations. He chose the nation of Israel to be a light to others. He chose 12 disciples to bear fruit and multiply. And He chooses what is insignificant and despised in the world and makes them extraordinary. Listen, there is no substitute for God and His manifest presence in His church. And apart from the revealed presence of God in the church... We're just a rotary club without music or Boy Scouts without fire or Chick-fil-A without chicken or Fred's Marketplace without fried catfish. But listen, you can't fake the glory or manufacture or manipulate it. It's a work of His. Only God can bring it. So our lives have 
have to be manifesting this glory. Good Hope has to be a church that exists for the glory of God. Where a community sees that He is greater than any political leader, social program, or sports team. A church that relationally and intentionally loves one another. A church that lifts up the family and strengthens it from within. Rather than allow the cultural passivity to rule the family. A church that is willing to get their hands dirty with those who don't yet know Jesus. We talk about being the bridge to people, and we don't need to be a bridge. We need to jump in the water. Listen, guys, God is not safe. And He's not going to be put in some neat, respectable Sunday service. You see, to know God at all is to watch Him explode any box we put Him in with His terror, with His majesty, and with His indescribable wonder. See, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So here in a moment, as we take communion, would you remember your place as an adopted child of God? And the confession that comes with that. But as you take the bread and the juice, would you also remember the commission that He has given us to go into all the world and make His name known? Most High God, You are great and You are glorious. Father, you are holy and just. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you that this church is a drop of color in a sea of darkness. That it is a light in this community and in this state, in this nation, and in nations. Father, would you continue to anoint these men and women? We know that your church is not made of walls, but it is made of bone and marrow. So would you continue to move in a powerful way beyond what they could imagine or expect. In Jesus' name.